Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I'm believing that the psalmist's words will be your reality this year. That's what I've been praying. As I have entered into the new year, I've been praying for this church. Uh, I've been praying for your families. I've been praying for you individually. That uh, as the psalmist declared in 65, Psalm 65, that your paths would drip with abundance. That abundance of joy, abundance of life, abundance of provision. And, um, you know, I keep hearing people talk about how God kind of surprised them in 2020. Almost the Christian narrative that I hear from so many people is that we started off 2020 believing God for such clear spiritual vision. And then they think, but that then 2020 happened. And I'm thinking, was there anything more clear in 2020? God made it so clear what matters are people. That's what matters, keeping people, serving people, loving my neighbor, dealing with what is eternal, right? And so I don't see it as being a year wasted. Uh, it, for, for, for what it's worth, 2020 wasn't hard for God. It wasn't hard for God. It may have been hard for us as people. It may have been hard for communities, humanity, those that are grieving I'm not making light of in any way, shape, or form. But Jesus is able to accomplish his purpose when we yield our lives fully to him. And that's what we're here to do in this brand new series. If you came in today, didn't receive a message card, you can raise your hand right quick and one of our ushers would love to serve you. We're in this brand new sermon series today for the next four weeks. I always get confused about that. So is it like, is it the next four weeks is in like this one and three more or is it the next three weeks? I would just say it's this one and four more or, or this one and three more, all right? So we're in a sermon series through the month of January called 167, 167, honoring God with every hour of life and we're so excited about what God is going to speak to us and then at the end of these four weeks we're going to get into our February series which is going to be so much fun it's going to be called won't you be my neighbor won't you be my neighbor we're going to talk about the art of neighboring I'm so excited for the month of February it's going to be a powerful powerful time and so um, but as we jump into the word of God today if you have a Bible go with me to the book of Romans Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to look. I do want to say, as Pastor Chad said, thank you so much for your love and generosity in 2020. We're believing God to continue to grow us, expand us. Uh, We set out in 2020 to raise an extra $100,000 to make more room for more people to meet Jesus. And that's what we're attempting to do. That's what we're uh, really strategizing and finding ways that we're able to move forward in 2021 across the street on our five acres of property. And uh, can I just go ahead and say, I just say it unashamedly, um, if you like to walk and you like to pray and you like to do that outside, I know weather permitting, why don't you start building your faith by going by the land at least once a week and walk that property and pray? So if this is home for you and this is the place and this is the literally ground where lives are gonna be touched, where Christ will be manifested, where believers, leaders, and churches can be multiplied, let's just begin to go ahead and sow our hearts into it and pray and let God begin to build your heart and vision. And ex- Are y'all with me this morning? Your, your, your expectation that the greatest days of our life are yet to be lived. 
that we are excited about God and what he's going to do in the days to come. So we're talking about 168 hours in a week. And we're working this series off of the assumption that if you are spending at least an hour per week in church, now if you come here, you've got an hour and a half. You're not gonna get a gathering that's le- unless it's Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve. It's gonna be an hour and a half. But the average ch- American uh, a Christian attends church two times a month, so that's now three hours, which is less than four hours if you attended all four Sundays. So we are working off the assumption that you have 0.5% of your week in church how do you honor God with the 99.5% of the rest of your time? How does that happen? How do we honor God with every hour of our lives? How do we honor God in those other 167 hours? And you see here at church, what we call the gathering, you got a band, you got singers, you got people who are here to serve you, literally they meet you in the parking lot with signs to say, you know, welcome home or smile it's Sunday. They greet you, they encourage you. They're there to, you know, speak life to you. It is a whole lot easier to honor God here on Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.15 than it is the other 167 hours that you live throughout the week. One hour of church, again, would only equal 0.5% of your week. So how do you honor God with the other 99, essentially 0.5% of your life. How do you honor God in terms of your work? We're gonna talk about this month. How do you honor God in terms of your home? How do you honor God in terms of your family? How do you honor God in terms of your value? And the scripture I wanna start with today is out of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse one and two. Romans chapter 12, verse one and two. The apostle Paul said, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, I beg you, I'm coaxing you, in view of the mercies of God, to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them, your bodies, this is the essence, this is the Greek word latreia, which means just utter abandonment, just worship. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship God. He said, don't copy, verse two, the behaviors and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. God will transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then, once you're transformed, you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and is pleasing and is perfect. Now, not the message translation, but the message paraphrase, okay? It's not a translation, doesn't claim to be one, but it is beautiful in terms of our modern language. Eugene Peterson says it this way, Romans 12 in the message. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. Thank you, Eugene. How awesome is that? You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. Take that life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Come on, somebody. Embracing what God does for you is actually the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. So what I want us to do 
is I want us to memorize Romans 12, 1 and 2 in the month of January. Can we do that? Deal? So I'm not going to preach next week. Pastor Chad will. The week after, I'm going to get up and we're going to recite that together with nothing on the screen. Y'all feel good? Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He tells us, I don't care what version you, you memorize it in. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He urges us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is the entire theme of this series. And spoiler alert, this is the entire theme of Christianity. Let me let the cat out of the bag. Christianity is taking your ordinary, sleeping, eating, going to work life and daily offering it to God. That's Christianity. That's the crux of what it means to live for Jesus. If you can get that right, seems pretty exciting, right? Your ordinary sleeping, go eating, hang out with your family, love your wife, love your spouse, love your children, ordinary life. And if you'll take all of that and lay it down before God, everything else in your life will flow out of that. So today what I wanna do is I wanna share something with you that I've really been looking forward to doing for some time. This weekend, we're gonna talk about the behaviors of the wise, the behaviors of the wise. If there's anything we need in today's world, it's wisdom. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians, he asks us the question that we should live as wise, not unwise. Watch this, making the most of every opportunity. So my question today is how do we make the most of the 167 hours? How do we make the most of it? How do we start off a series on honoring God with every area of life without talking about living with godly wisdom? So we're gonna talk about today is how do wise people live? How do they live? And let me just calibrate your thinking for a moment. This message is a leadership message. So if you are called as a leader, and if you aren't aware of this fact, every follower of Jesus Christ is called to be a leader, just to let the cat out of the bag. We call ourselves followers, but God's kingdom and in his kingdom, followers are called to be leaders. We are influencing people. That's what leadership is. We are called to spread the aroma of Jesus wherever we go. Thus, by the mere fact that you've said yes to Jesus means you now are a leader. You're leading. No matter what you put your hands to do in life, you are leading in some capacity. We follow the capital L leader and every single one of us, no matter what we do in this life, we are called to lead what? We are called to expand the boundaries of God's kingdom. We say it like this, our vision, we are called to manifest Christ in many ways to many different people. We have a vision. That is our vision. Now, Many of you may not know, I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, did not grow up in church. Won't give you the full background, but at age 16, um, resurrection life breathed over me and I came alive. I, I, I woke up and I got born again and life was drastically different. Had the wonderful privilege of leading my family to Jesus, uh, all really in the first three months of following after Jesus. Met my wife, even as a 16 year old, literally the next month, we would date for five and a half, almost six years and have been married for another 13 years on top of that. But when I first met Jesus, I still had all of the passions uh, that God had given me earlier on in life. And one of those was being um, 
medicine. I wanted to go to UTK to be a pediatric neuro, neurologist, particularly a neurosurgeon. So Ben Carson was my hero. And so at the age of 17, 18, I'm knocking out all my EP classes. I'm getting my dual enrollment done so that I can go to UTK. I can spend three years in Knoxville. My fourth year of undergrad would be my first year of med school. I'd move to Memphis. I'd be done completely at seven years. At those seven years at age 25, I would do some residency. And by 26 to 27, I'd start operating on some craniums. That was my goal. That's what I had in my mind. That's what I felt like at that point God had called me to. And in the final few weeks of my high school career, It started one night in my bedroom where as I was reading the Bible, the Lord began by his Holy Spirit to constrain my heart. He just, oh, there's no other way. He lassoed my heart. He lassoed it and he began to pull it to himself for what we call vocational ministry, five-fold ministry, equipping ministry. And it was confirmed through a dream that I had that night when I was sleeping. And then the next few days, three out of my four main mentors came to me with much trepidation and said, I don't want to, I want to be careful here. I don't want to call you to ministry, but I just feel the Lord's clearly told me he's called you to equipping ministry. I mean, it was just a total life change again. I withdrew from UTK. I I enrolled at Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee, and I just began to faithfully serve in my church. I'd only been saved for four years, three and a half years, and I went on staff as a pastor at the church. And I was uh, 19 turning 20 years old. And so here I was now pastoring my peers. I was the college, the young adult pastor and the outreach pastor. And so um, my pastor really did me dirty, to be honest with you. Um, He hired me, but then didn't tell our young adult group that he hired me. So we went in on a Wednesday night and we were all sitting down waiting for a teacher to come in. And I gave it a few minutes. And then I stood up and said, Hey guys, I got an announcement for you. I'm actually your pastor now. And that was my entrance, right? I'm, I'm your pastor. I'm actually been hired. And uh, y'all ready? Let's get our Bibles open, right? That was my entrance into ministry. And at 20 years old, I was green. I was green. I had a lot to learn. But then right after graduation, I went on staff at one of my heroes in the faith. That's where I met Pastor Chad in Gainesville, Georgia, a church called Free Chapel. Pastor Jensen Franklin was my hero, especially in those first few years of following after Jesus. And from then on, the moment I worked at a mega church, right? From that point on till now, when I meet with people, and particularly when I was in the young adult ministry, the youth ministry world, people always wanted to sit down and talk with me, not because they cared about me, but because they wanted to ask me and question me, what did you learn by being in a ministry like this, okay? I don't even normally give that part of my whole story anymore because then that's how the whole conversation tends to go with other Christians. I don't even give that. But they start asking questions. What did you learn? What was that like? What was it like in that context? And, and so what I've done through the years is I've told a lot of stories about what I've learned. But through the years, it's dawned on me, now five years post-church planning, that these are some of the most valuable things that I own, the lessons that I learned. And the same can be said about you today. Some of the most valuable things you own in life are the lessons God has taught you through some of the most difficult seasons God has led you through. Listen to me, I've learned something. The hard thing in front of you will produce good fruit inside of you. And quite often there's no ability for the good fruit to be produced until God puts the hard thing in front. And when I approach the hard thing in front of me with the determination and endurance that God gives, God produces wonderful fruit that's able to bless multitudes of people. So what I wanna do this morning is I wanna share some of those things. And each of those that I'm gonna share today are connected to the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom. 
And I wanna walk you through what I'm calling six behaviors of the wise. Now, especially, listen, if you are an emerging leader, so that is you're a young leader in the room, you need to take good copious notes because you have a lot of time on the horizon and you have a lot of you know, space and real estate out in front of you. And the sooner we can learn godly wisdom, the better things actually go in the long run. So here's the first behavior. They're in no order, but the scripture says wise people are really good at this. Here's behavior number one, point number one. Wise people are quiet. Wise people are quiet. Wise people are quiet people. One of the things I've learned in leadership is that the person who talks the most is never the person who knows the most. The person who talks the most is never the person who knows the most. But have you ever watched the person who talks the most? They think that they're the one who knows the most, right? They tend to believe that they know the most. But time and time again, I've been reminded of this truth that the person who talks the most is never the person who knows the most. Listen to Proverbs 17, verse 28. The Bible says, even fools are thought wise when they keep silent with their mouths shut, they seem intelligent. What's he saying? Everybody thinks you're an expert until you open your mouth and prove otherwise. Everyone thinks that you know what you know until you open your mouth and prove to them that you don't know what you think you know. It's kind of like baseball. Now I like baseball. Talking is like baseball in this way. You ready? The more you talk, the lower your batting average. The less you talk, the higher your batting average. One of my mentors in a past season of life at a church that I served, dear mentors, he hardly ever talked in our meetings. Now we had meetings all the time in this context, all the time. It was, I called Tuesdays death by meeting. And I would be meetings for eight and nine hours a day. And other people in the room would talk incessantly. And I've learned that people who talk the most are rarely listened to the most. Why? Because just too many words come out of their mouth. So we've lost the value. We, we stop listening to them. There's too many words, way too much. You're too verbose. Too many words are coming out. But then my mentor in these meetings, when he would go to speak, it was like everybody on the in the room would move to the front of their seat and they would treat him like he was E.F. Hutton. And I realized what's actually happening because his words are more valuable because he saves them more. Let me say it like this, are you ready? When you've learned the habit of silence, you have finally learned the value of words. When you've learned the habit of silence, you've finally learned the value of words. Let me give you an illustration. If I gave one of my children a credit card, now we don't own a credit card, but let's say we opened one up, okay? And I got a credit card and I gave it to one of my children. And I said, hey, use this whenever you need it. And let's say my daughter, my eight-year-old daughter, Marley, took it and she maxed out the card at $20,000 credit limit. She maxed it out, okay? What would we call Marley? Now, I'd call her a couple things that I wouldn't tell you, Okay? And I certainly wouldn't tell you at church, but what would we call Marley? Here's what we would say. She doesn't understand the value of the money, okay? Then what do we call adults who talk too much? They don't understand the value of words. They don't understand them. They're maxing them out. 
without understanding how God has given us. Now let's just got to let that sink in for a minute if you're a little bit chatty Cathy. Words are powerful and when we use too many of them, we are cheapening the value of them. Look what Proverbs 10 and 19 says. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible on Facebook and keep your mouth shut. Be sensible on Instagram and keep your thumbs off the screen. Okay? Too much talking, he said, leads to sin. Now that's great advice. And here's one of the things that I've learned being in rooms filled with world-class leaders in the body of Christ. I have been in many times. I served in a, in a, in a group called Empower 21, which is a global council for the spirit-filled church. And I was in rooms where I had no voice and I did not have a vote. And here's what I learned. You ready? The best time to speak is after you hear God speak. That's the best time to speak. Listen, I think some of us have convinced ourselves that our perspective and our wisdom is more impressive than it actually is. People, listen, listen, people in 2021 do not need my opinion. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, people in 2021 do not need my perspective. People in 2021 need to hear God speak through me. That's what people need. They need to hear the God of the universe use my lips as a mouthpiece. And we as the body of Christ have got to become better as followers of Jesus to become those who do not speak until we're spoken to. And I'm not talking about being spoken to by the CEO at your table in the conference room. I'm talking about the God of the universe. We need to be people known as people who speak only after we hear God speak first. A wise person is quiet. A wise person, listen, doesn't have few words. A wise person simply knows how and when to use those words. I've become fascinated in years past with studying the words of Jesus and the incidents of Jesus' teaching. So several years ago, I went through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I recorded every incident Jesus taught. How many different incidents do you think Jesus taught? 125 times. 125 times Jesus taught. Now listen, only 13 of those 125 start with content. The other 112 start with questions. So when Jesus shows up on the earth to transition the world to a brand new covenant, he slows down long enough to look people in the face and ask them questions at a third grade level. What did Jesus demonstrate for us? You can actually preach by asking questions. So you don't have to preach this year by making declarations. You can actually preach in this postmodern world, this post-Christian society by asking questions. Slowing down enough to look people in the face and ask them questions. To listen more than you speak. James tells us be imperturbable. He says, be quick to listen and be slow to speak. Jesus modeled that. Here's the second thing that wise people do. Wise people, number two, are humble. Wise people are humble people. Wise people are humble people. Proverbs 11 and verse two, pride leads to disgrace. Watch this, but with humility, next slide, comes wisdom. With humility comes wisdom. Isn't that amazing? So what's he saying? He's saying humility and wisdom go hand in hand or wisdom and humility go hand in hand. When you walk in humility, you will walk in God's wisdom. Now, what is the big deal about not walking in humility? It's very simple. I'd say it like this. I'd say it like this. When I'm not humble, 
I can't get help. And when I don't get help, I always get hurt. I always get hurt. So we as the body of Christ have to become better at humbling ourselves so we can get the help we need. I have, I have said so many times, I've been vulnerable with you. I have said so many times in my early years of following Jesus, the thing I struggled with the most was humility, was self-dependence, pride. In my early years of ministry, it was the absolute biggest battle of my life. I was on staff one time at a church and the pastor came to us as, as, as family ministry pastors. And family ministry just means we were contextual, like age level pastors. And the pastor came to us and he said to us, I want to hire an executive pastor that would be over you all as family ministry pastors. And one of our family ministry pastors thought that that person should be him. He would lead the team of family ministry pastors. And so he said to the pastor, I'm not kidding, said while we were in the meeting, he said, well, I sure hope that that guy is one of the th three best youth pastors in America because I just can't see myself learning from anyone but them. Y'all, he pastors today. Can you believe people go to his church? <laughs> Thank God for grace because I've been there too. I've said some stupid things. I mean, what do we have? A couple hundred students in our student ministry. It wasn't like we were running thousands of students, but I hope it's one of the three best youth pastors in America because I just don't feel like I can learn from anyone but them. Who talks like that? Let me tell you who talks like that. An incredibly insecure man who was deathly afraid of being found out that he did not know what he was doing in ministry. That's insecurity speaking. And it's all over our culture. It's all over our culture. I call it in today's world, the get real imperative. Meaning I don't ever minister to other people until I'm willing to get real with them. Be authentic of how that scripture has first affected me. You wanna talk about limiting the content you have to preach? What if no preachers ever preached again except the verses in which they have personally applied? So in other words, you couldn't get up and declare truth to any of God's people until you first shared that that scripture has done this in my life. I call it the Colossians 3.15, get real imperative. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly first. Then you can share with other people. See, what happens over a period of time is the longer we say it gets or are saved, we start sharing our edited testimonies. You know what our edited testimonies are? The edited testimonies are the ones where we preserve our reputation and diminish God's reputation. You know what I'm talking about? Listen, 2021 is not the year for God's people to walk around telling edited testimonies. It is time for us to be vulnerable and real and share the unedited testimony. Why? So that our reputation will not be preserved and God's reputation will be praised. If God's gonna do what God did in your life, at least tell the whole world what he truly found you like. Don't tell them what he found you like two years post-salvation. No, no, no. What did he find you like? What, what was your life like before Jesus? That's what honors Jesus. And one of the things that I really, really struggle with is I felt as a young leader, I was called to lead something wonderful. And here's one of the things I dealt with that I see consistently younger leaders deal with. And I dealt with it day after day is that young leaders are always in a hurry. They're always in a hurry. And here's what I would say to any young leader trying to rush God's timeline. If you're a young leader trying to rush the timeline of God, hear me, go back and read how the Israelites moved through the wilderness. The Bible says when the cloud would move, they would pack up camp and they would move. And if we would get to the place where we don't move unless God moves, 
Not we move when it seems better for us and our career and our desires and not not move when it seems to be expedient to cause our dreams and ambitions to be met. No, we move when we see the cloud move. So I'm not packing up camp. I'm not moving forward until I see God move. Pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. Listen to me, listen to me. One of the greatest evidences of humility for a leader is a willingness to wait your turn. To wait your turn, a willingness to wait. I'm gonna read you a verse that the Lord used in my early 20s to knock me down, peg after peg. And he used it year after year. This is a verse that meant the world to me. Proverbs 25, verse seven. It's better to wait for an invitation to the head table than to be sent away in public disgrace. Did you hear that? It's better to wait for an invitation to the head table than to be sent away in public disgrace. This verse was such an important verse in my life because I, like most young leaders, was in such a hurry to get to the head table. And this verse, I'm gonna tell you, this verse saved me from immaturity. I can't tell you how many leaders I've seen in the body of Christ where God pulled the chair out from under them because they pulled the chair up themselves. And they got the chair and they pulled it up to the table and when they were ready to sit, God pulled them the chair out from under them and they were disgraced publicly. You know why? Because God hated them? No, because he's trying to teach them how dangerous pride is. And he loves you too much to walk in it. So it will happen. It will happen. You ask Jesus to be Lord of your life and to cut away the things in you that are unlike him, it will happen. It will happen. And every morning that pride will scratch your throat going down as you swallow it again. Its nails will, will rip your esophagus open when you wake up every morning having to swallow your pride again and swallow your pride again and swallow your pride again. Let me tell you one such time in my life. Uh, my, my wife and I, we were pastoring at a church called North Cleveland Church of God at the time and I had been there for almost three years and we had such vision in our heart Um, God knew very well that we loved ministry to young adults, particularly those in the 18 to 25 age group. We had felt that God many years in our earlier in our life had told us that we would be church planners. And I was thinking, well, how do I expose myself to people that are all around the world? And one of my main mentors at the time, his name was Billy Wilson. He calls me one day, he was in Cleveland, and he said, hey, I want you to come and sit down with me. And I told my wife, I already feel like this is gonna be one of those meetings. I just kind of put her on, on standby. And I went to his office and I went in there and I sat down and he told me, hey, it's not been public news yet, but I'm about to be hired as the president of Oral Roberts University. Uh, Zay is a graduate there. Now 85 different nations represented in that student body, literally sending leaders across the globe in the spirit-empowered world. And, um, and I remember feeling, and he told me, you, you come, you're gonna be campus pastor. You're gonna get the opportunity to lead ministry on campus, um, being able to share with chapel, lead campus small groups. And so within the next few weeks, my wife and I, we're getting our kids taken care of and we're on a plane to Tulsa. We go out and spend a few days. We look at houses, we look at neighborhoods. We feel pretty good. We go to chapel, we come back, we have a prayer meeting. And over a period of days, we had kind of gotten to our heart. You know what? This is the invitation to the head table. This seemed exactly what God had called us to long-term. 
But then we started waking up and God would give us red flags. I'm gonna tell you probably the best piece of advice I've ever learned in my life is just sleep on it one more night because everything, I swear, everything changes tomorrow morning. If you just wait, if you just won't make decisions hastily, you will make the right decision. And so we slept another night and woke up. My wife had a red flag. And so we said, you know what? This is gonna be the hardest no we've ever had to say, especially to a mentor because he's asking you personally and he takes it personally and he responds personally when you tell him no. And so we had to go to him and I had to say, no, we... We're called to do exactly what you're asking us to do, just not that way. Now, that took a lot of deal. And I thought, you know what? That was wasted. But you know what happened? When I went back to the church and my pastor at the time, I had been there for three years. I knew in that season of life that if we did not change and alter what we were doing for young adults and young people in our church, we were gonna continue to lose them, hemorrhaging them because of the age gap. And I knew God had gifted me the ability to minister to them, but I'm not gonna pull my own chair to that table. So you know what happens? That one no to him, my mentor, calls my pastor to come to me and say, hey, I want you to consider starting a, a whole nother alternative Sunday morning service. And I'm gonna give it to you. And over those two years, guess what would happen? We would minister in that context and that would be the ultimate on-ramp for God to call us to move to a city called Woodstock, Georgia, to be standing on this stage today. Now, what if I would have pulled my own chair up to the table? Could have ended in public disgrace. What I'm trying to tell you is that wise people have to be humble people. Now, for me, that was a struggle, an absolute struggle to say, God, I wanna humble myself under the mighty hand of God and in due season, he will what? He will lift you up. We got to learn. We have to learn how dangerous pride is. Here's why pride's so dangerous. Are you ready? Pride sees God as a competitor. And God doesn't have any rivals. He will have no rivals. When I walk in pride, it becomes so easy to be convinced that I don't need him to do what I'm doing. If I don't have a prayer life, what am I saying to myself and God? I don't need you to do what I'm doing. I have it, I'm under control. You see my strength, it's good, right? I'm good, two thumbs up. But when we walk in humility, isn't it amazing that God says, I will elevate that person. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and in due season, he will what? Lift you up. The most important lesson in life for us to learn is to learn how to wait on God. Because faith in God includes faith in his timing too. Not just faith in his way, but faith in his timing. Listen, Joseph waited 13 years in the pit. Abraham waited 25 years for God to make good on his promise. Moses waited 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus waited 30 years. If God's making you wait, you are in good company. You're in really, really good company. Jesus, I was reading through the, the gospel stories during Christmas this year, and the thing that became so apparent to me is Jesus is born in, an, in, an, in a relatively inconspicuous manner after 400 years of silence in the prophetic department. From Malachi to Matthew, it's 400 years of God saying nothing. And then he goes silent when he gets born for another 30 years. He doesn't say anything. Then you think, woo, yippee, he's getting publicly baptized. It's time to let the cat out of the bag. He gets out of the water and goes silent for 40 more days. And it became so apparent to me, Jesus takes his time. Meaning when he leads you, he will take his time. 
and it won't be on the timetable you expect. It will never be in the way, the desire, the intended desire that we have. Why? I've thought about that. Why does God make us wait? Are you ready? The giver is more than the gift and God is more than the blessing and our being kept waiting on God is the only way for us to learn to find our life and joy in God himself. It's the only way God can teach us to not have life and joy in our calling. See, we even, we even love our calling so much, our calling becomes idolatry. Like I need to move into my calling. Let me tell you your calling is, it's to be a son or daughter of God that delights yourself in him every day. That we're chasing after him like he's a first choice prize, not a second choice prize. So wise people are humble people. Here's the third thing. Wise people read, learn, and obey the scriptures. Wise people read, learn, and obey the scriptures. Look at 2 Timothy 3 and 15. The Bible says, and how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you, tell me what that word is. Tell me what that word is. What are the scriptures gonna make you? This is a behavior of the wise. The holy scriptures make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now you've heard us talk about our Bible reading plan. We're believing God to cause us to grow, not just as readers, not just as learners, but doers of the word. And if you've never set out in, 20, in a brand new year like this to read through the Bible, I can't tell you how many people just scrolling through my Facebook feed, not, not, not Woodstock people, I'm talking about Tennessee people, people in other cities that said, man, I've set out every year to try to read and I'm never able to read. I'm never able to finish it, okay? Listen, my number one goal for you, hear me if you're attending this church, is not just to read the scriptures this year as a way of checking off a checklist. It's to meet with Jesus in the scripture every day of your life. I promise you, if you make the decision right now, it's not a matter of intention, it's a matter of habit. If you make the decision to meet with Jesus in his word this year, you will not be the same person next January you will not be the same person. They asked Charlton Heston years ago, what, what movie changed him the most? Playing what movie? He said it was by far the 10 commandments, why? He said, you can't walk up on the mountain and spend 40 days with him and walk back down the same man you were when you walked up. You can't meet with God every day, at least five days a week and be the same person. So it's not intention. It's not intention. Oh, I got a good intention. No, 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 it's habit which means my job as a pastor is to do everything I can to help you. So I don't know how it's to do it other than give you a plan, record some podcast, put a hashtag so you see it when you're not reading the Bible, but reading Facebook instead. Uh, whatever we can do to get before God's people, spend time with Jesus and his word engage Jesus in the word. Moses in his final sermon in Deuteronomy chapter 30 begins to give so, such wonderful truths about the nature of scripture. He gives three main truths about the nature of scripture. You'll see them there on your card in front of you. He says, number one, read the Bible as if your life depended on it, because it does. He says, I set before you life and death, choose life. He said, if you hear these words of mine and submit to them, you'll have blessing. If you don't or ignore them, you'll find curse. In other words, your life does depend on it. It depends on it. Jesus said, whoever hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Pastor Chad said, I believe this year it would be more of a disparity in the body of Christ for those who are able to advance and not advance. Let me tell you, it's people who've not just heard the word as consumers for 10 or 15 years of their life, but have learned to live the word of God, do the book. 
to practice biblical truth each and every week of your life. Listen, our problem is not that we think the Bible's unimportant. Our problem is that we don't do anything about its importance. I've often asked Christians, if I gave you $500,000 to never touch the Bible again, if I gave you 500,000, would you never touch it again? Almost every Christian, even nominal at best, would say, no, I'm not gonna do it. Now, here's my question. You identified your Bible as an asset worth more than $500,000. What other half million dollar asset in your life do you treat so carelessly like that? Do you have any other half million dollar asset that you set on the shelf and don't touch for an entire 365? No, you don't have any other asset that's that valuable that we just leave to the wayside. So in other words, we have to read the Bible like our life depends on. Here's the second thing that, that, that Moses says is read the Bible because God has not hidden what he wants us to know in it. He's, not, he's made it clear and plain. He says, this commandment I command to you today is not too far off. It's near you. He said, it's in your head and heart and it's in your mouth so you can speak it meaning. Listen, listen, God will give you wisdom to understand the scriptures. He's given us, First Peter, everything we need for life and godliness in him. People say, well, I can't understand the Bible. Well, that's not how the Bible talks about itself. It says you can understand the Bible. As the Spirit of God leads you, Jesus said he would lead you into all truth. The Spirit of God's called the Spirit of truth. There is a, the gospel for you ready to grasp and obey. And how many times was Jesus asked questions during his earthly ministry? Not one time did he say, you know, I get why you're confused. The Old Testament just seems to be so unclear. No, he said again and again, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? Implying, if you'll read, you'll do it. <laughs> if you've read it, you'll understand how to put it into practice. It's right there in front of us. Here's the third thing Moses says about the nature of scripture. Don't just read the Bible. Encounter the person within the Bible. The Bible is the only book on planet earth that every time you read it, the author is present. There's no other book that you can read and the author be with you. But every time you read the scriptures, the author's with you. The Bible says in 1 John 2, 20, you've received an anointing from the Holy One and you understand all things. You know what that means? The Bible's best read in the anointing of the Holy Spirit because it was written under the anointing and to the anointing, it yields its greatest treasures. Meaning if I read the scripture and ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten and illuminate my heart, revelation will burst forth in my heart so that I can see Jesus and see Jesus more clearly. Wise people, listen, they read, they learn, and they obey the scriptures. Fourth, what are wise people? Fourth behavior of the wise. Wise people are teachable. Everybody say teachable. Proverbs 13, verse 10, pride leads to conflict, but those who take advice are, are wise. Pride leads to conflict, but if you take advice, you're wise. Now, let's just think about this as followers of Jesus Christ. Everywhere Jesus went, he did what? He taught. He's called the rabbi. Rabbi means teacher in Aramaic. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you not think he was trying to make a statement? Hey, this is what my followers do. They learn. My followers always learn. My followers keep learning. By the way, did you know what the word disciple means? Learner, student. Probably the best accurate English translation would be pupil. Okay? That's what a disciple is, being trained of their master. Learners. So here... If Jesus is known for being the teacher, his followers better be known as being teachable. We gotta be teachable. We gotta be open. I always said to people, listen, you can learn from anybody in the world if you just know the right questions to ask. There's no one in this room that cannot learn right from right now from my 10-year-old. 
There is something my 10-year-old could teach every person in this room, including me, if I just know the right question to ask. But I have to know the right questions. I have to be able to discern what it is that I need to know. How is it I need to grow? I think a lot of us are afraid to be teachable because we think it looks bad. We think, listen, we think either you're the teacher or you're teachable. But that is so untrue, folks, so untrue. The best teachers I know are some of the most teachable people I know. Hear me, hear me. If I don't have time to learn, I don't have time to teach, okay? I wish I could tell that to authors. If I don't have time to read, I don't have time to write. We'd have a whole lot less books, okay? Listen, a desire to preach without the desire to prepare is a desire for me just to perform for you. In other words, the worst teachers I know are the least teachable people I know. They think they know it all. And a teacher like that can't teach me much because I don't wanna know what they know. I don't want their knowledge, I want wisdom. And wisdom is constantly growing. Knowledge has a limit. Did you know that? Knowledge has a ceiling. Wisdom does not, because wisdom includes the heart, okay? Which is why it's so important that we don't just have teachers, but we have mentors, because teachers sow knowledge, mentors sow their heart. It's the difference. Now, if you get a teacher that sows their knowledge and their heart, woo, you need to two thumbs them up, right? I mean, that is, that's a mentor, okay? That's a mentor. But when we talk about being teachable, wisdom, wise people remain teachable. Let me give you just real quick four marks of a teachable spirit. You ready? Four marks that says, you know what? I'm teachable. This will open up incredible doors for your life and leadership. Here we are. Here's the first one. A teachable spirit admits they don't know. They admit they don't know. The first mark of a teachable spirit is you admit you don't know. Men, why is it when our wives ask us, do you know where you're going when we're driving? Why is it when they say, do you know where you're going? We hear you are an utter failure in life. We hear that, right? And we say, of course I know where I'm going, woman. Abraham called Sarah a woman. Sarah called Abraham her Lord. <laughs> of course I know, woman, where I'm going. That's an insecurity that's afraid to admit I don't know. Listen, the wisest people will, will always you will ever meet, the wisest people you ever meet are the fastest to admit they don't know when they don't know. It is not a sign of weakness to admit you don't know. It's actually a sign of wisdom. It's a sign of wisdom. Second mark of a teachable spirit is you ask questions. Asking questions, you ask lots of questions. Lots and lots of questions. A question is one of the most powerful things on earth that we don't use them enough. I think for, for many of us, we're far too busy making statements when God created us to ask questions, to hear, to listen. Here's the third mark. Answers excite them. Teachable spirits, answers excite them. An answer they've been, when, when, when someone who's teachable finds out an answer they've been searching for, they run around like a giddy schoolgirl and they run around like a giddy schoolboy. I found it, I found it, I found it because that's how you treat wisdom. Like the pearl that it is. Let me tell you the people I love mentoring and hanging around me are when I say something that taught me, took me years to learn, they don't turn their head the other way and start talking to somebody else. Do you think they're gonna keep getting pearls? No. This is what Jesus teaches us. You have to treat wisdom like the valuable treasure that it is. Here's the fourth one. A, a teachable person 
applies immediately. Applies immediately. And what does that mean? They apply everything they learn immediately. Remember, remember, a spiritually mature person is not one who knows the Bible. A spiritually mature person is someone who applies the Bible. Listen, every revelation God gives me must immediately go to our obedience or else it'll only serve to make me more religious. Listen, people who grow in knowledge and revelation, but they don't obey it, they get more and more religious. It's only when I get a revelation from God that I obey it that I'm served, serves to make me more like Jesus. So here's one of the big things I've learned. The most teachable people I know are most liked by the wisest people I know. The most teachable people I know are most liked by the wisest people I know. Why is that the case? Because a teachable person treats everything you've learned as valuable. They treat it like the prize that it is. Let me explain it like this. If after the gathering, I come up to you in the lobby and I gave you a $100 bill, I just said, hey, happy new year. And you went, uh, thanks. Do you think you would get a dime from me for the rest of the year? Let me help you. No. No, you would not get a dime. But if I handed you $5 and you started running around in the lobby today like you had won the lotto, you think you might get a few more bucks from me? Yes. Those that are wise in your life will pour out into you when you treat their wisdom like the value that it is. But this is where entitlement has, the enemy has set up a perfect concoction for our generation. You got an entitled generation that will not take and treat with value the God-given resource that the older generation wants to give. And the older generation thinks that they don't have God-given resource to give to the younger. And so now what happens? The Old Testament ends with one desire. He said, turn hearts of fathers to sons, sons to fathers. New Testament opens, one desire. What was uh, John the Baptist coming to do? To uh, to baptize in the spirit of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the sons. So the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins in the same emphasis, intergenerational mentorship. And we've got to get to a place where we treat the value and the wisdom people give us as treasure. I'm very passionate about this principle. That we listen and we grab hold of and we apply. We take what God gives to us through the resources he's given us and we apply it in our lives. Why would I give that person more money? Because they appreciated the $5 and they valued that $5. Listen, I hear this all the time from younger leaders. How How do I get a mentor? How do I get a mentor? Let me help you. Stop walking right by wisdom every day of your life. There are people all around you who have decades of following Jesus. And we're begging God on our fast. Send me a mentor, send me a more mentor. Why would God give you a new mentor that you've been begging him for if he sets you next to one in church and you won't talk to them? Why would he give you a new mentor that you're suddenly theoretically desiring when there's someone right next to you that you can ask a question? but we have to listen, we have to engage, we have to say, I wanna grow. And the sooner you adopt a teachable spirit, the sooner God will flood your life with anointed teachers. He'll flood your life, because wise people are teachable. Here's the fifth behavior of wise people. Wise people walk with the wise. Wise people walk with the wise. Let me show you one of the greatest overlooked promises in scripture. Anybody like promises? We always start New Year saying, what's your promise? Well, what about this promise? This is, a, this is a powerful promise. Proverbs 13, verse 20. Walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools and get in trouble. Walk with the wise and become wise. Not study for a thousand years and become wise. Not 
go to the university setting and become wise. He says, simply put, you walk with wise people, the promise is you'll become wise. This scripture tells us that something called spiritual osmosis. Now you science nerds, you know what osmosis is. I'll, I'll try to give you just a quick definition. Osmosis is, is that molecular thing, right? It's where two things are next to each other. One has more, one has less, and the one that has more bleeds over to the one that has less so that they equalize, right? It's this principle called osmosis. You say, Craig, what does that have to do with my life practically? This is the point. If we will just walk with the wise, spiritual osmosis will happen. It will, it, will, it will trickle into your thinking, your life, and the way you see life. You say, Craig, how's that even possible? When you walk with the wise, their normal becomes yours. When you walk with wise people, their normal becomes yours. I can't tell you how many times in 15 years of ministry <laughs> that just walking with wise people has raised my bar of normal. My therapist, my own therapist, not overwhelmingly wise in all areas of life, but I'm gonna tell you, he is a savant in human behavior. Savant. Sagacious and wise as anybody else I've met in terms of human interaction. And when I get around him, um, one of the things that really messed me up pretty early on meeting with him is that when you talk to him, you think he's having a stroke. He responds so slowly. He would bat his eyes. I love him. He'd bat his eyes and he would wait. And I would like, do I need to say what I said again? And he just will not respond to a human being without deeply thinking about what he says. He just won't do it. Just won't do it. So your, his de- whole demeanor makes you, makes you settle into his office because you can't, you, can't, you can't be in a hurry. It's part of, I guess, his tactics. You, can't, you, have, to, you have to stop. And so here I am talking to him, and here's what I've learned, because I counsel people every week, sometimes every day. I have become such a better counselor just by walking with a good counselor. Just by being with a human behavior savant, I have learned human behavior better. Why? Because when you walk with the wise, you become wise. Their normal becomes yours. Now, let me just say this, especially to younger leaders who are asking, how do I get a better mentor? Okay, on this point, walk with the wise. Let me give you two things that have taken me two decades to learn. If you're gonna walk with the wise, two things. You see it on your card? If you're gonna walk with the wise, you gotta walk at their pace, not yours. Walk at your mentor's pace, not yours. Here's what that means. You don't sit down when you have coffee with them for the first time and say, God told me we're supposed to have coffee every week this year. You will never have coffee with them again. You don't set the pace, they set the pace. You don't set the pace with wisdom. The wisdom sets the pace. So you know what that means for you? It means for you, if they can only meet with you twice a year, you take it and you get excited about it and you eat up every single minute you get with them. This is so unpopular in today's world. Let me just preach it anyways. People assume that I spend every week with mentors in my life. There were mentors in my life that I met with two times a year. But here's what I've learned. When God is involved in the mentoring process, he can do more in one 30-minute meeting with your mentor than anyone else can do with you in six to 12 months. And listen, when God gets involved in the mentoring process, I'll tell you, one of my main mentors, every time I'd get with him, God would give me a prophetic word. And God never gave me a prophetic word the whole rest of the year. Now, you think that's God's grace? That's God's grace. 
If he only has two times to give me, he has two times to give me. So I'm gonna soak up the two times that I have in his presence to, to talk, to engage, to ask questions. So you walk at their pace. You soak up every second you get that godly wisdom. Here's the second thing if you wanna walk with the wise. You walk on their path, not yours. Meaning, this is a big one, you join them. They don't join you. So that means you rearrange your schedule to be on their path, not their rearrangement to be on your path. Okay, this is, really, this is key, this is key. So it means, you know what? There may be mentors in your life that come into your life and you may get invited to come hang with them one day and you think, I'm gonna spend three hours doing something I don't wanna do, but then they're gonna give me a nugget. And at the end of those three hours, they may look at you and say, man, thanks for hanging out with me today. We'll see you this weekend. And you're thinking, I spent three hours with you when I could have been doing this with that person or my family. Well, here's, here's what I've learned. Before you can show someone how much you love their wisdom, you have to be willing to show them how much you love them. And what we do in a 21st century world is we pursue people's wisdom, not their personhood. That's treating people like prostitutes. That's saying, I want your wisdom, I don't care about you. I don't care to love you, share with you, encourage you, help your ministry, do what God's called you to do. I just want what you'll do for me. That's prostitution, okay? That's prostitution. When I come to someone who is a mentor and I say, hey, I'm gonna walk on your path. I'm gonna walk on your pace. Whatever I can get, I wanna soak it up. I wanna glean, I wanna grow. Give me what I want. Give me just my vision, my desire. No, 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 we can't do that. That wisdom, when their wisdom is not more valuable than their heart. So what it means is for me, wise walk with the wise. And here's the sixth and final behavior. Whoever's playing keys, you can come. Wise people Thank you, Casey. Crave criticism. Wise people crave criticism. Crave criticism. Look at Proverbs 15 and 13. If you listen to constructive criticism, you'll be at home among the wise. If you listen to constructive criticism, you'll be at home among the wise. Why do so many of us run away from constructive criticism? I think it's because we don't understand what it actually is. See, too many of us, especially if we struggle with insecurity, we think constructive criticism is, you are dumb, you're horrible, you don't know what life is, you don't know what you're doing, why are you even here? Listen, if you're really, you're really gonna be wise, you gotta understand what constructive criticism is, and watch this, and what it's like. Can I explain it to you real quick? Constructive criticism is like being the driver in a car, and you don't know where you're going. And the passenger knows exactly where you're going and you take a left turn and they tell you you should have taken a right turn and they say you're a good driver but you have made a wrong turn you need to turn around and go back the other way are they yelling and screaming at you and you go share and share that offense with everybody else that they've just been mad at you and called you a bad they didn't call you a bad driver don't go to Facebook and say they called you a bad driver because the truth hurts your toes no, they didn't do that. They said, hey, you're a good driver. I know where you're going. You don't. And you went the wrong way. So what do you do? You turn the car around <laughs> and you go the way that they tell you to go. And you thank God for it. Too many of us, we take criticism, constructive criticism too personally. Listen to me, listen to me. Yes, constructive criticism is slightly personal, but it's also highly profitable, highly profitable. 
Constructive criticism is one of the most valuable things we can get. And one of the best ways to improve as a leader is to get stronger in the areas of your weakness. And for you to get areas uh, stronger in the areas of your weaknesses, it takes you hanging around people who love you and some godly wise people who are saying, hey, you're a great driver, but let's just tweak this right here. Let's just change that a little bit there. It happened to me time and time again. You know, I was thinking this week when I was at uh, Free Chapel, pastor of mine, Pastor Jensen, I, the days that I would lead the Sunday service, meaning I would be next to him, I would get up and I would pray and then I would go into a 411 and then I would give the offering and then I would pray again. And I remember every time I would go down, you know what he'd do? He'd cup his hand and he would say, that was, that was really close to being heretical, but I'll, I'll, I'll take up for it. Okay, we'll turn this a little bit and really good job, but you need to tweak that a little bit. I remember the first time uh, I prayed for about 60 seconds. Then I did the whole offering thing and then I prayed for about 20 seconds. And he came, I came down and he said, hey, if you prayed for 60 seconds at the beginning, your offering prayer needs to be really, really short. Five seconds tops. And I, it almost took me back. I mean, you tell me to pray short? Yeah, I'm telling you to pray short because we only have so much time in the gathering. So he would tweak. And, and what does that mean for me? It means I have to listen. It means I have to submit. It means I have to, with a heart, say, you know what? I can receive constructive criticism. Why? Because... I want to be at home among the wise. Do we want to be wise people? We have to accept constructive criticism. Never forget this. Constructive criticism builds up. Deconstructive criticism tears down. That's how you know the difference. And they have two different tones. A person who's trying to deconstruct you is strong and mean and fierce. And a person who's constructively criticizing you has a sweet, but it's firm, gentle tone because they love you too much to keep watching you do the thing incorrectly. They want you to change. They want you to grow. And even if you don't get constructive criticism, look at me, church, look at me. Even if you get wrong criticism, criticism can still be a tool used in the hands of God to help you discover whose glory you're laboring for. And if you get it too personally and take it too personally, guess whose glory you're laboring for? But when you don't take it too personally, guess whose glory you're laboring for? So God uses it to help us to discover. Let me say it this way, you ready? Our critics are the unpaid guardians of our souls. People who critique us, they are, they're un, we don't have to pay them and they guard our souls. They keep us from going off to the left, to the right. A godly person who is wise receives constructive criticism. Come on, band. So what is wisdom at its core, church? It's doing things God's way. And let me tell you something, God's way always works. As we enter into this new year, can I just remind you, your calling that God has placed on your life, it is huge. It is awesome. It is amazing. It does bring about change. It brings about transformation, but you hear me you'll never be able to pull it off doing it your way. Some of you, you have, you have God's promise out in front of you. Listen to me, listen to me. Your path to God's promise is going to be miraculous or else it'll look like you pulled it off. So go ahead and get ready for it. You're gonna be confused out the wazoo. There's gonna be seasons where you don't think it's coming to pass where things have changed, shifted, God's forgotten. No, that's all part of the process. For God to show you, you can't pull off his calling in your own way. 
And here's the good news. The God of the universe says, if you'll ask for wisdom, I'll give it to you liberally, James says. I'll give you the wisdom. Walking, listen, in the will of God might mean waiting as much as it might mean moving forward. (laughs) It might mean I have to wait for a season and it might mean I'm waiting for more seasons than I feel like I'm moving forward. Let me tell you something. You can't give people the conclusions without walking the journey or else they'll substitute the conclusions for the journey itself. So God leads us by hand through the journey to teach us he's faithful. He can be trusted and whatever he's promised, he will lead and guide you in. Let's make 2021 a year where we walk with the wise, where we live in wisdom, amen? We become like Genesis says, the sons of Issachar who knew their times and what Israel should do. How many of you think God in heaven right now, there's a divine one summoning us because he has exactly the wisdom we need for 2021. How many of you believe that? So then what do we do? We wait on him. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.